I'm committed to work with China where we can advance American interests and benefit the world. But make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country. We built a global coalition. We stood against Putin's aggression. We stood with the Ukrainian people. The debate in Washington and other Western capitals has been raging for years. Which adversary, Russia or China, should the United States and its allies devote its resources to countering and containing? Early in the Biden administration, the China hawks appeared to be ascendant as the White House pursued what it described as a stable and predictable relationship with Moscow in order to focus on Beijing. And then Russia invaded Ukraine, shifting the balance decisively, albeit possibly only temporarily. China hawks continue to argue that U.S. and allied support for Ukraine is taking resources and attention away from the threat from China. What if this is all a false choice? What if the U.S. and allied efforts to aid Ukraine and contain Russian aggression also have the benefit of deterring China as well? Well, today's guest is a former senior U.S. diplomat and the co-author of a recent article that argues just that. So stick around. Hello from my new temporary office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's Bowel Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Brian, thanks. I miss your Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, however. I, I, I miss my Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, too, but I think the trendy DuPont Circle space is better acoustics. We'll, we'll see uh, what our listeners think about that on the Twitter, if the acoustics are improving in this new space. So, David, you recently co-authored what I consider a very important article uh, in the Bulwark titled Helping Ukraine Can Deter China. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this appears to be a direct response, in part at least, to a piece by Elbridge Colby, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, um, and Kevin Roberts, the president of the Heritage Foundation and Time Magazine, where they argue that the United States should shift its focus away from Ukraine and containing Russia to focusing on China. You counter that, and I'm quoting you here, the Ukraine fight is the China fight. Explain to our listeners your thinking, and then I want to kind of drill into the details of the article uh, as we proceed. Sure. Well, first, uh, credit to my co-author, Igor Kristen, who is uh, uh, the new managing director uh, for global policy here at the Bush Institute, a great new hire, who, while being an Asia expert, is also uh, from Ukraine originally. So I, I thank him for uh, for pushing this article the, the idea is that um, we believe President Xi is watching very carefully how the war in Ukraine unfolds, how the West responds to it, and what kind of assistance we provide Ukraine, and what kind of price we force onto Russia. And our belief is that uh, we need to help Ukraine win, and in doing so, we are likely to make Xi think twice before he, pardon the uh, phrasing there, <laughs> Uh, before he might do anything toward Taiwan. The, I, I think a major difference that Igor and I have uh, with 
Bridge and Roberts is that we don't disagree that China is a challenge and a threat that we have to prepare for. Where we strongly disagree, however, is they just basically want to say, Ukraine, that's Europe's problem. You deal with it. We have our priorities in Asia. Uh, we don't buy that at all. We are the world's leading power. We're the superpower of the world. And we have responsibilities that extend from Europe to Asia to other parts of the globe. And we don't have the luxury of saying we'll just focus on Asia and let others deal with the worst security crisis since World War II on the European continent. Yes, it's on the European continent. Yes, the Europeans need to do more. But the Europeans have been doing a fair bit. But without our leadership, the, the situation for Ukraine would be much worse. Yeah, the thing that strikes me about this China debate, it's kind of like it's China first versus only China is the way I kind of see it. Because even those of us who kind of are focused on Russia, we recognize that China poses a long-term security threat to the United States and its allies. We get that. Um, but the United States I grew up believing in could walk and chew gum at the same time. I, I don't fully understand why this debate is continuing, uh, especially after... Uh, February 24th of last year, the Russian full-scale reinvasion of Ukraine. Can you provide any insight into that? Why is this persisting? Is this just bureaucratic politics, or are there true ideological differences in the kind of D.C. policy community about this? I, I think it's uh, true differences ideologically. I, I Look, I, I'll be honest. I think some of it may be a reflection of where people have spent their academic studies, where they mm -hmm. devoted their careers. Um, and for those who have focused on Asia, they feel that it is long overdue that we, the United States, spend most of our attention and energy and efforts on Asia. Uh, those of us like you and me who have devoted most of our career to Russia, I don't think we're, I don't think we at least are doing it. And I, I frankly wouldn't attribute this to them either on the other side. I don't think we're doing it because we don't want our careers, our focus to become irrelevant. We're right. doing it because last I checked, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, invaded Ukraine in 2014, it reinvaded Ukraine in 2022. Um, it has projected uh, terrible power in Syria. It's all over Africa with the Wagner mercenaries. It has uh, interfered in our election. Um, again, we're not saying ignore China. What we're right. saying is let's also not ignore the immediate ongoing threat right now that we right. see coming from Moscow. And so, as you rightly said, Brian, we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We don't have the luxury of, of picking, let's go with China uh, and focus on that and leave Russia to others. Yeah, and you make that point, that case very, very strongly in in, in the piece you and eager row. And I, a thing I would add to that, David, is that by, by, by taking care of, by neutralizing the Russia threat now, it makes it easier to deal with China later. Russia is the short-term problem. Russia is a resentful, declining power that's lashing out, and that's dangerous. China knows it's rising. China knows time is on its side. And I'm not a sinologist, but I try to talk to a lot of sinologists, and I do want to get Bobo Lowe on the program to kind of dig drill into some of this stuff. But, but China is a long-term problem for right now. They're not trying to blow up the international system. In fact, the international system has been very good to China. So I, 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 I just have trouble comprehending why this debate is continuing. But nevertheless, it is, and that's a reality that we both have to deal with. Um, did you want to add something? Well, yeah, I mean, part of it, too, I think the, the China-only crowd, if you will, um, I think that's a good way to describe it, um, feels that in helping Ukraine, we're uh, taking attention and, and weapons and other things away from what we would need in China. 
the the Russian Ukraine war is a land war for the most part. The Ukrainians actually like our F 16s, and for reasons <laughs> I don't understand, the Biden administration refuses to provide them. Uh, I guess out of fear of escalation, but I don't agree with that. What we're talking about in the Pacific is a far different kind of military conflict. And and but but that said, there is a great need for the United States. Unfortunately, I don't say this as somebody who uh, takes great pride in, in devoting resources. We need to build up our military capabilities. We need to build up our capacity on the basics of ammunition, of missiles, and other things, right. so that we are in a position to help Ukraine. We also have to remember in this in this uh, situation that it is the Ukrainians who are doing the fighting. We are not doing the fighting. We are providing the means for Ukraine, hopefully, to win this war. And in the Pacific, I dare say we would be the ones doing the fight exactly. there. And so if we can help Ukraine win and defeat Russia, I think the message that she would take from that is picking a fight with Taiwan where the United States is likely to be involved militarily would be an even worse idea. So how we handle the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, obviously, has enormous implications for Europe, for Ukraine, first and foremost, European continent for the globe, but in particular for what she might decide to do when it comes to Taiwan. Right, David, you just telegraphed where I wanted to go because you basically bust three myths in this piece. Um, myth number one is that military assistance to Ukraine is hurting our Indo-Pacific posture. Um, could you? I know you just began talking about that. Could, could you kind of drill a little deeper into that for our listeners? I mean, we we need to build up our need. Uh, we we need to increase our naval presence in the in the Pacific um, so that China does not uh, have an advantage there. It, it, the the assistance we're providing Ukraine right now has nothing to do with our navy, um, and we need to build up our air force capabilities. Um, the, the land war would be less of an issue when it comes to a Chinese attack against Taiwan, were it to happen. Uh, whereas right now, we have underway a land war, for the most part, where Russia has invaded Ukraine and re Ukraine is, is repelling the Russian invading forces. And so uh, th there's no question that we need to beef up our military capabilities, our supplies and everything. The depletion of our, our weapons is a problem, but it isn't just a problem when it comes to uh, China. It's a problem more broadly, including the war right now unfolding in Ukraine. No, no, that, that point's well taken. It's different kind of military resources that are being used in each of these theaters. In fairness to those that make the China first or the only China argument, I mean, I, I, I hope I'm I'm treating their argument fairly. I think the argument seems to be that resources are finite um, and that we're we're right now. Uh, my last count is about 40 billion dollars in assistance to Ukraine. I think their thinking might be that could be used in the Indo-Pacific. Does the, does the overall resource argument hold any water? I, I don't think so. I mean, we, we have been providing about $40 billion in military assistance um, and, and more assistance when it comes to economic and humanitarian right. aid, uh, over $100 billion. Uh, but this is in a defense budget that was uh, voted on that's over $800 billion. Um, right. Every billion dollars, don't get me wrong, every billion dollar, every dollar is, is important when it comes to taxpayer funds. But We've got to keep in mind that um, uh, Europe was the source of two world wars in the last century. Uh, Japan obviously uh, contributed to that in the Second World War, uh, but Europe has has been the uh, source of 
terrible global havoc uh, in the last century. And if we were to just say, not our problem, let the Europeans handle it, um, it's it's not going to work that way. And so we need to be able to lead with our European allies. Um, There's also a tendency, I think, to be too dismissive of our European allies. If you look at a number of these countries in GDP percentage terms, some European countries have been doing more than we have. Um, And so I think it's important not to throwing the baby out with the bathwater saying, well, if Europe isn't going to step up, then why should we? Well, if we don't step up with our European allies, then what's happening in Ukraine will go well beyond Ukraine. It implicates Article 5 security guarantees potentially with NATO member states. Um, And then it's either the end of NATO, which President Xi, by the way, would interpret as a a green light to move against Taiwan. Well, no, what really what really keeps me up at night here is the in the event of a Russian victory, this ain't going to be the last war. We both know as people have followed Russia throughout our careers, every Russian empire begins with Ukraine, but none ends with Ukraine. So there are going to be more wars in the former Soviet space if Russia is successful in um, in Ukraine. And that would also give China a big fat green light in Taiwan, Taiwan, I think. And we would really be bogged down. So I think the this has got to be nipped in the bud right here. David, you kind of began to dive into your second myth. Um, and this is as, as, as somebody who lived in Europe for a long time and is very fond of the Europeans. Uh, this is something that really sticks in my crawl when I hear this. The Europeans aren't aren't shouldering enough of uh, of the burden. That's your myth number two. Uh, that Russia isn't uh, Europe isn't shouldering enough of the burden. We both know if you let you just alluded to it, the top contributors by percentage of G- GDP are Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland are one, two, three, four by percentage of GDP. U.S. is fifth. Uh, in overall terms, the U.S. of course is far and away ahead of everybody. But what can you what what can you because we've seen big changes in Europe over the last year in their attitudes and in their defense posture. I notice it in my own conversations with Europeans. What what can you say more about this this myth that Europe isn't shouldering enough of the Ukraine burden? I mean, ask the Ukrainians, and Boris Johnson is held in extremely high regard in Ukraine. Uh, while he was prime minister, he led the British in, in providing military assistance to Ukraine. Uh, the the Brits have done a, a very good job on this. Even Germany, which is often everyone's favorite punching bag, um, there there is frustration with how decision-making is done in Berlin. Um, but let's remember those first days when Russia reinvaded the country in February of last year. Olaf Scholz announced that Germany was going to significantly increase defense spending. Uh, Nord Stream 2 was dead um, and that the relationship with, with Russia would, would really never be the same. And um, he, he, there's been slow walking on, on that for sure with Germany. Um, it comes, I think, with the nature of a coalition government to some extent. But uh, even Germany has been uh, providing assistance. Now, it took the Poles and us, I uh, almost really give more credit to the Poles, to push forward on the leopard tank issue Right, that finally freed those up. But Europeans have been providing, I think it's going to be close to 230 or so uh, leopard and other kinds of, of tanks that are European. The Abrams tanks that we're providing aren't likely to get there until the fall sometime. And and. The Biden administration came under some attack in the Congress this week. Senator Cotton, Senator King, an independent, were uh, raking the administration over the coals about how slow the tanks from the United States are going. But fortunately, the Europeans are stepping up when it comes to tanks. 
Uh, you've seen uh, Poland and Slovakia move ahead with MiG-29s as we drag our feet on F-16s. And so the Europeans are doing a, a, a fair share. We're the largest country in the world. We're the most powerful country in the world. Um, no one comes close, even if you combine the next, what, five or six countries right. in terms of defense spending to the United States. And so um, there is, whether one likes it or not, an un, a, a, a burden on, on us to provide military leadership in something like this. And it's, it, it is terrible for the Ukrainians that they are the ones doing the fighting and dying. But for us, the least we can do is to provide them with the means to not just defend themselves, but to go on offense and regain control over their territory. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes people make about Europe in interpreting Europe's position is they interpret the position of Paris and Berlin as that of all Europe. And for the longest time, and you know, working in government on Europe, that you know, as Germany and France goes, so usually goes Europe. But I've been noticing it for the last year. And I'm wondering if you noticed it too, a real shift in the center of gravity in Europe uh, from, from to, to, to the east, um, to the Baltic states, to Poland, to Romania, to the Czech Republic. You're beginning to see that, 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 that they are kind of the, not just the moral leaders, but leaders in terms of action in, in, in Europe, because that is, those are the countries that have really stepped up and provided Ukraine with what they, um, they need. The other, the other thing that, that kind of influences the opinions on Europe on this are uh, President Macron's freak out know, statements he's not saying it as much as he used to say but this need for negotiation and and then I, I i'm not quite sure how he's trying to position himself there what his end game is but this gives the impression that the europe's or the europeans are being kind of soft on this any any thoughts on that yeah i mean well first i, I i'm glad you had uh, uh czech here um what the czech republic um uh to the list of countries that have stepped yeah. up they no, really, they really have. stepped up uh, absolutely. And and uh, you're, I think you're absolutely right that the center of gravity here has shifted eastward. I think Poland, um, a country of its size, has really um, uh, taken on more of a leadership role. But the Baltic states have just done heroic work on this. And, and look, you know as well better than I do, Brian, that they have been sounding the alarm about Russia for years and years and years. Uh, they, they, like the Poles, have lived through what it means to be taken over and occupied. And they understood that the threat had not gone away, particularly after Yeltsin turned things over to, to Putin. And so um, I, I think they have been proven right. Um, and they are also not just saying, we told you so, but they're following through with their actions, with their commitment to Ukraine to help it win. Um, and so I, I do think that he, he, Macron has, has sort of quieted down on his talk. Uh, but let's also remember that uh, we're talking about two entities where consensus is required. That's NATO and that's the European Union. And right. so to get all the members in agreement is not an easy thing. I salute the EU for the yep. unity it's shown on the sanctions. Um, you got to remember Hungary. Um, often the prime minister there, Viktor Orban, does Putin's bidding in mm -hmm. some cases, but not so far to the point where sanctions have fallen apart. Um, Turkey, a member of NATO, obviously not the EU, um, is another tricky country that we have to deal with. And uh, Turkey plays a role when it comes to prisoner exchanges, when it came to the uh, deal allowing Ukrainian exports through the Black Sea. Uh, 
uh, you, uh, Turkey provided inst- uh, absolutely critical support to Ukraine with drones early on in the okay. conflict. Um, and yet uh, Erdogan still talks to Putin. Now, he's got an election coming up. We'll see what that means for Turkey's approach and policy toward this region. But U- Europe, we got to remember, is a collection of countries, and it's not easy to hold them together. There's one other issue just to flag, and that is the bans that some of these neighboring countries have put in place on Ukrainian agricultural products. Um, and this is being done because farmers in these countries are crying foul that uh, they are taking in too, ma- too much of Ukrainian imports. Um, but I, I wish there was a little more understanding of flexibility that Ukrainian farmers are doing the best they can. They desperately need the revenue generated right. by exports to these countries. If nothing else, I would wish there would be some arrangement where Ukrainian exports could go through these countries uh, to the Middle East, to Africa, just like the right. exports on the ships are going. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm a little like uh, disappointed that so, a better solution to this problem. I understand the political problem inside of Europe, but these are extraordinary times. Um, but nevertheless, we see, I mean, a sea change in Europe. I, I mean, I lived in Europe for for, for 17 years. Um, I, I, there's a sea change in Europe now, and this is just another way in which this war is a paradigm shifting event in so many ways. We're 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 entering really a new world now in a lot of ways. I agree completely, Brian. By the way, so for the China firsters or the only China folks, mm. um, if they want Europe to join us in dealing with the Chinese challenge, Ex- the way not to do it is to tell like, them, you take care of Ukraine. It's on you. Give us a call when you're done. Uh, because if we, if you will, abandon them to dealing with Ukraine on their own, they will never join us um, and and helping deal with the China challenge. So the way to try to get everybody on board, and it's going to be a challenge no matter what. The Europeans right. and we don't see China eye to eye. But uh, the best way to do it is to work together in dealing with the Russia threat right now. And if we are effective, as I think we can be in doing so, we're more likely to get the Europeans on board or closer to us when it comes to China. Yeah. And and kudos to the administration for their diplomacy with the Europeans. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I, I, I don't have a single complaint right now in terms of the way the administration has kept the alliance and the allies together. Um, I want to dive into your third and most important myth that you debunk in this piece, because this is the one I really want to drill into. The myth is that our actions toward Ukraine won't help deter China. You say, of course, they will. Let's debunk that myth for our listeners. Sure. So, you know, President Xi has been in Moscow. Uh, He just uh, spoke to President Zelensky. He is following this situation very, very closely. And if he sees a united West coming to the support and aid of Ukraine and pushing back and imposing serious consequences on Russia, uh, we believe that that he will be less likely to take action against Taiwan, that he will see a united front against this kind of aggressive activity, and it will, will deter him from, from moving against Taiwan. Um, so uh, the, the world is watching how we respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it's so important that we show a united front, that we show strength. And strength is the way to to deal with these threatening authoritarian regimes. Uh, President Xi oversees a threatening authoritarian regime uh, where he, like Putin, views uh, democracies right nearby as, as threatening alternatives to the systems that they oversee in their own countries. And so if we can help Ukraine win, not just defend itself, but win, 
then I think that will have a major deterrent effect on any plans that Beijing may have to a Taipei. Yeah, no, I'm glad we have to keep repeating this word win, 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 because I want to see it start to enter the vocabulary of U.S. and, and European policymakers. I don't want, I, I'm, you know, it's great that we're with Ukraine for as long as it takes, as long as it takes to do what, uh, as long as it takes to win. And I, I would really like to see that begin to go into the discussion. Um, I, you, I know, you, Brian, just, uh, sorry, just on that, you and I have talked about this a lot and, and just real quick, I really wish President Biden would get out there and explain to the American people why we're supporting Ukraine and why helping them win is in the U.S. interest. He gave a good speech in Warsaw after he visited Kiev, um, but he needs to address the American people. I really think that the, the failure to do so is almost ceding the narrative to the naysayers out there. And I, I would dare say that if President Biden gave a major uh, primetime speech to the American people explaining about Ukraine, maybe the moment has passed, I, although I don't think so. I think if he did, you would get Senators McConnell and, and Cotton, who uh, raised right. concerns about the foot dragging on assistance to Ukraine. You'd get uh, Congressman uh, Chairman Mike McCall, the House Foreign Affairs Committee chair. Uh, uh, Chairman Turner on House Intelligence. You'd get them out there, I bet, say, we don't agree with President Biden on pretty much everything except this issue. There is strong bipartisan support to help Ukraine win. And it's so important for that narrative to get out there, particularly now that uh, one of the most negative voices uh, on Fox News has, is no longer in his position. Right. I'm wondering how much that, uh, what kind of effect that is going to have on the debate, because as you, you you know, David, there are problems on the far right flank of the Republican Party, but also on the far left flank of the Democratic yep. Party in this. And I, I think I don't think the time has passed for President Biden to give that speech because it's really needed right now to explain why we have to continue doing this. Because, yeah, there's still Ukrainian flags flying all, all over Washington, D.C. Um, and all, other parts of the country. But I'm looking at the polls very carefully because I'm, I'm worried about this. As we always say, as I like to say, the area between the 20 yard lines uh, is uh, is safe in the American political spectrum. But the uh, you know, the, the the red zone is a little dangerous on both sides. Right. And I'm 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 nervous about that. Um, the polls are holding up for now in terms of supporting Ukraine, but I, I'm not sure that's going to continue. Um, and I think you really do need some presidential leadership. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about on this topic before we move into the second half is you and I haven't spoken since uh, since the Xi Putin summit, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I've had you on since it. How did you interpret that? Because I found that summit really, really interesting for a number of reasons. Um, the fact that they, they seem to dial back the rhetoric from the, the limitless partnership that we, yeah. we we heard last year. I was watching the body language really carefully. Um, and I was like, it was funny. I mean, she looked like a mafia Don leaning back in his chair. He's in Putin's house, right? He's in the Kremlin and Putin's leaning forward and fidgeting and like, and it just, it struck me. There was no question who was in charge and who is the junior partner. And I'm wondering, I mean, this China Russia thing, they're not two separate policies. I think they are one policy, but we got to watch this China Russia relationship and where it's going, because I, I, I think there's been a lot of misinterpretation. I know you're not a sinologist and neither am I, but how did you view the Xi Putin summit? Do you have any top line takeaways from it? Well, I, and I think what you described is right. I, I don't think this went the way Putin had hoped. Um, I think he was uh, hoping and expecting for a bigger embrace from Xi. Um, it doesn't appear that there was a breakthrough in securing uh, major Chinese military assistance uh, there's still questions about uh, 
dual use technology and and those kinds of things. We've seen actually Lukashenko go to Beijing as well, yep. uh, trying yep. to work his diplomatic skills. I'm not sure he has any, <laughs> um, but uh, it was interesting though that you just had the Chinese defense minister in Moscow, and yep. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. That did worry me a little bit. Um, I do think that that she and the Chinese leadership do not want to back a loser. And if we can help Ukraine turn Russia into a loser in this war, I think Chinese support is less likely. I know there are those who will argue uh, she does not want to see Russia lose and will provide assistance in order to prevent uh, Russia from losing. Uh, boy, I, I, that would require a lot of assistance, including, by the way, personnel. You know, the, the this leak uh, that we saw about um, uh, Russian concerns about manpower. Uh, they right. keep throwing numbers at, at the problem and the numbers aren't working. They are taking up uh, Ukrainian ammunition, uh, tragically, for those who are being sent to the front line. But um, China's not going to solve that problem. And um, so I, I, I don't think that uh, Putin is getting what he hoped and expected. I do hope that she reinforced the message that we've heard from the Chinese before about no use of, of nuclear weapons. Right. Uh, not because I think it is likely, but because you and I both here, here in the United States, concern about escalation that Putin will resort to this, the talk about stationing uh, tactical nuclear weapons on Belarusian territory. Which was a total psyop. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Exactly right. But on 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 she, I mean, I I know the conventional wisdom is that she doesn't want Putin to lose the war, and I'm with the caveat that I'm not a sinologist. I would say I don't think that I don't I think that what she is really concerned about is the after effects of Russia losing the war inside Russia. He doesn't want re regime change in Russia. They don't want chaos in Russia, right? They and they certainly don't want a pro Western government, which I think is highly unlikely, but a pro Western government emerging after this. In Russia, I think that's what she's concerned about. Russia losing this war makes Russia more dependent on China, which is good for China, right? So I, I, I that that's how I kind of view that. No, I, I agree with you completely, Brian. I think the art, the additional argument though that's made uh, along that line is that if Russia were to lose this war, and it certainly is losing the war, it hasn't lost, but it's losing the war. Losing. Um, I think the concern of Beijing is that then attention shifts to containing uh, China, uh, that that with victory by the West uh, with Ukraine over Russia, then the attention, resources, uh, all the effort then shifts to the East. Um, I'm not sure that that will prevail in terms of a major shift in Chinese policy. I, I, I do think she is, is mindful of the consequences that could come that we have warned him very explicitly about should China really ramp up any military assistance to Russia. And uh, given how integrated China is in the global economy, I don't think he wants to risk that. Anything else you want to add regarding this piece before we move into the second half? Uh, no, I think okay. we're ready to move. The article is called Helping Ukraine Cut China. We will have a link to that in the show notes. It was published in the Bulwark earlier this month. I, I highly recommend everybody read it. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at another one of David's recent publications. Damn, David, you are prolific lately. I'm jealous. Um, this one about our mutual friend, Vladimir Karamurza, the Russian opposition figure who has just been sentenced to 24 five years in prison for his opposition to Putin's war of aggression 
in Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, get Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. For the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. Привет, это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. So earlier this month, Russian opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza was sentenced to 25 years in prison, ostensibly for treason. But in reality, he was sentenced for very publicly and very vocally opposing Putin's war against Ukraine. It represents the longest sentence handed down to a Russian opposition figure since the collapse of the Soviet Union. David, both both of us have been friends with Vladimir Kadamurzov for years. Um, he's been a guest on this podcast multiple times. The Putin regime twice tried to poison him in 2015 and again in 2017. He was an influential voice here in Washington, arguing persuasively for the Magnitsky Act and other sanctions against top Russian officials. Quite frankly, I literally begged him not to return to Russia. But he said to me what he always said. He said, Brian, a Russian politician needs to be in Russia. I respect his bravery, though I wish he was still here with us in Washington. In your ironically titled article, My Friend the Traitor, you called him, and I'm quoting here, one of Russia's greatest patriots, and I wholeheartedly endorse that sentiment. What else would you tell our listeners about this remarkable and remarkably brave man? Well, he is a, a true Russian patriot. He wants a uh, better future for his country. He, he's a, a dual citizen, but not American Russian, yeah. but British Russian. He's been a resident here in the United States. His wife is a US His wife is an American citizen, um, as are their children. Um, and yet he, despite being nearly killed twice, um, returned to his country because he is fighting for a better future. Uh, I think it's also incredibly important for listeners to understand that his health is not good. Uh, It's the lingering effects of the two poisonings that you mentioned, Brian. Um, It's also just being in a Russian prison, which, you know, people don't uh, be in. Um, And a 25-year sentence is the equivalent of a death sentence. Um, There is, I think, an urgency and pushing for his release um, he's had problems uh, as a result again of the of the poisoning in his legs um, and and one of his arms. It, it, it's really important, uh, I think, to do whatever possible to try to secure his release. There is a push underway uh, to designate him as a wrongfully detained person, um, which I think would elevate his case higher. Um, this was a designation given to uh, Paul Whelan who has been yep. in Russian prison since December 2019, also to Brittany Griner, 
um, and and now uh, Evan Gorshkovich, uh, the Wall Street yeah. Journal reporter. I mean, there, there's a a a, uh, a really tragic history here of of Russia using Americans and uh, Russian uh, activists who are trying to fight for the right cause as either uh, hostages um, or to punish and, and to take out of the political situation. We see this with Navalny as well, yeah. uh, who is suffering terribly in prison. Yeah, no, and I want to pick up on those, the, 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 this, um, like, what, you know, the, the efforts to possibly get him and others out. I just wanted to kind of add to you, I mean, the, 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 I, I want our listeners to appreciate the amount of clout that this man had, not just here in Washington, but in every Western capital, every West, every door was open to him. And when he talked here in Washington, people, people who mattered listened. And when he talked in Europe, people who mattered listened. And in addition to his work on the, on the Magnitsky Act and on sanctions, um, I was always impressed. I mean, he was very close to our common late friend Boris Nemtsov. Um, Boris Nemtsov was was Vladimir's uh, mentor in a lot of ways. And the, the campaign that he was doing in Western capitals, which I thought was absolutely uh, just an absolutely brilliant form of trolling in the best sense, is he was getting, you know, streets in front of Russian embassies around the world named after Boris Nemtsov. And I remember a conversation I had with with, with Vladimir. I was like, "Look, you know, if the Russians object to this, I'm like, why? What's your problem? This is a great Russian figure. What do you do? You feel guilty about something, perhaps, right? Because it was, you know, obviously the Kremlin was behind Nemtsov's assassination in February of 20, um, 2015. Um, you you mentioned in your article that um, Alexei Venediktov, uh, the Russian German journalist, had a tweet claiming that Margarita Simonyan, the Russian propagandist. Um, is proposing exchanging Kata Murza, Paul Whelan, and Ivan Gorskovich for Julian Assange. Um, I'm I was surprised I wasn't surprised by that tweet. I don't know if you said it might have been trolling, it might not have been, but that seems like an awesome trade from our perspective. If to, if you can get the Brits to go along with it, right? Um, because we would get all we get three three people back. Um, and, and I mean. Uh, is Assange really that important? How do you how do you interpret this uh, tweet by Venedictum about uh, Simonyon's alleged uh, proposal? And is this serious? Is the trial balloon, or is this trolling? In your opinion? Well, well first, let me just say uh, to reinforce what you said about Vladimir's uh, influence and effectiveness. Um, he was a pallbearer for the late Senator John McCain. Uh, mm-hmm. Senator McCain had enormous respect for him. And the work he did in advocating for Russia, uh, Vladimir and, and Boris um, both said numerous times that the Magnitsky Act, in which the two of them played a critical role in helping get passed with Bill Browder's leadership, um, was the most pro-Russian piece of legislation one could pass in the U.S. Congress. Why? Because it wasn't sanctions against Russia. It was sanctions against individuals responsible for gross human rights abuses. And so it was a targeted way of going after the bad guys. And Vladimir played a, a very important role in that. Uh, in naming uh, the the streets in front of the embassies, as you described, uh, that obviously really sit well on the Kremlin. Um, if he were an insignificant, inconsequential person, he would not have just received a uh, 25-year sentence. They would not have arrested him last year. Um, and so that is a reflection of the impact he was having. Um, and yet at the same time, I can't help thinking 
in light of what the situation is in Russia today, he arguably was more effective on the outside. Um, an argument to be made that he maybe should have stayed out, but th- that's water right. under the dam. Um, in terms of that that tweet with Simonyan, uh, you know, look, exchanges are inherently tricky uh, because uh, you don't want to encourage this kind of, again, if you will, hostage taking of Americans so that the Russians can get their guys out that they want. Um, I, I, she, I don't know whom she's seeking yeah. for. For um, I'd, I'd be surprised if the Kremlin went along with that kind of deal. Um, there, there are two Russians that the Slovenes, uh, arrested not that long ago that may be of interest. There's this guy in Brazil. Uh, I don't know that we have, um, uh, many or any Russians that are of great interest here in, uh, in detention in American prisons. Uh, the Brits I'm told don't, uh, because the, the, uh, logical, uh, thinking would be, well, if he's a dual British Russian citizen, Vladimir, that is. Um, then why wouldn't the Brits ex- engage in an exchange? Well, this is what I'm uh, curious about. Why hasn't the British government, ste- or maybe it has stepped up and we just haven't heard about it, um, in defense of its own citizen? Because Vladimir is a dual uh, UK Russian citizen. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that I have personal direct experience dealing with the Brits on this, but what I've been told is that they have, at least publicly, not been very active on this. Mm. I, I hope behind the scenes... They are working on this, but I, I think, Brian, you know it better than I do, that Russian-British relationship is really bad these days. Yes. Uh, yes, it is. And and, and so uh, having the Brits uh, weigh in on this may not produce anything. I'd rather actually have them try and let us know that they're trying than to uh, be doing either nothing or just doing it quietly. Right. I, I think there just needs to be a full court press bringing more attention to his situation. Uh, remember, he's uh, been a contributing columnist to the Washington Post, so he's well-known through that. I mean, rather amazingly, he still has contributed to the yep. Post even during his imprisonment. Um, his statement when he was sentenced was just remarkable mm-hmm. uh, for how he takes the the higher ground on this. Uh, he, he's an amazing person. I also, uh, Brian, want to mention that his wife, Genia, has just done a heroic job first uh, taking over uh, sole responsibility of the family, I think, with some some uh, relatives help. Uh, but she, in her own right, has stepped up as a spokesman, not just for his cause, but for the cause of of Russia's a better future for Russia, has done it brilliantly. Um, she's an incredibly powerful, if understated uh, spokesperson in in her own right, and uh, if there's any silver lining from this otherwise tragic situation, it is to see Eugenia uh, Karamurza uh, step up in, in such yeah. a prominent and positive way. Yeah, she's been forced to almost become a public figure in this. She in, has in, in this situation, and she's she's risen to the occasion. As have Vladimir's colleagues at the Free Russia Foundation, where he was he was he was an officer, I believe he was the the the. the, the the president, if I'm not mistaken, um, I was. Where do you, when you look at all of Putin's hostages or hostages and political prisoners, because I kind of see two categories here, right? There, there are hostages. Uh, Gorshkovich is a hostage, of course, right? Paul Whelan is a hostage, um, but Mark Fogel could argue. Mark Fogel is a hostage, right? Yeah. Uh, but Ilya Yashin, Alexei Navalny, yep. they're political prisoners. They're not trying to exchange them for anybody. Vladimir's in this 
weird place in the middle of these kind of things because he's a, again he's a dual citizen he has uk citizenship um but he's also a well-known russian opposition figure how where do you place karmorza in this how do you think the russians view karmorza in this uh i i would say um that they probably view him more as a well i mean of course they would reject the term political prisoner there are no course, political prisoners and they'd also reject the term hostage <laughs> right exactly so <laughs> Um, but I, I think I think he's more in the Navalny Yashin camp uh, than he is in the Gershkovich uh, Weyland Fogel camp, um, which makes it more difficult. Um, but you know, Natan Sharansky uh, is an right. example of someone whose freedom was secured as a result of an exchange, um, and so uh, just because he may be in that category doesn't mean that we. Uh, give up hope of of securing his release, but you're you're right in adding Ilya's name to it. I mean, there are more political prisoners in Russia today than there have been since the Soviet Union, and uh, it is a reflection of how ugly the domestic situation is in Russia, where the father of a, a young teenage girl can nice. be arrested because uh, she did something in school that was interpreted as critical of of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and. He was uh, arrested in, in Belarus and sent back to, to Russia, and she's been taken out of his uh, custody. I mean, it's a reflection of how the Russian leadership does not value human life, even of its own citizens, unless it's their lives. Right. And uh, you see that with how the uh, just the bombing uh, overnight in, uh, in Ukraine, a deliberate bombing of apartment buildings um, and residences in Ukraine. Uh, how they handled Syrians, what they did to Chechens um, right. in both wars and, and the 90s, um, and what they're doing to their citizens today. They they There's there's no uh, sense of decency there. There's no attachment of value of human life in Russia under Putin, and uh, uh, Vladimir is un an unfortunate victim of that. Yeah, and then there's also this, uh, this, this, this uh, college student, this woman in Arkhangelsk, um, yeah, was uh, for 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 social media posts. She's she's managed to flee the country. And you're yeah, this is this is you took us exactly where I wanted to go, David. This is great. We can almost finish each other's sentences here. But uh, this, I mean, I wanted to go to where? To, what does this pretend? Because the the sentencing of Vladimir Kadamurzak to twenty five years in prison, which by the way is like as much as you get for murder in Russia. Yep. That just by by way of comparison, what this portends. Because this is happening in a context, right? Now, Alexei Navalny is saying now new charges are being uh, prepared against him, which could result in life in prison. Um, he's being accused somehow of treason while he was still, or terrorism, I forget which, while he was still incarcerated. So I don't know how you do that. But uh, but he, he he apparently managed to do it. Um, I've read today that now they're, they're, they're changing the sentence for treason to life in prison. I mean, what are, are we heading towards one of these really, really, really dark chapters in Russian history. I mean, the, 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 that we both know about because this is, this is getting a little bit creepy now. Uh, in this, I, I think we're in it, Brian. I don't think we're heading into it. I think we're in it. Um, I, and, and I, I think you could date the beginning of it um, to, yeah, I'd go back to Beslan, Putin's speech after mm -hmm. Beslan. And then eliminating gubernatorial elections and then talking then about how outside powers are trying to take a juicy piece 
uh, of Russia and then the Munich speech and you see this all evolve. Escalation, uh, yeah. You could go back, I mean, to 2000, 2001 with the takeover of the TV stations from Gusinski and Berezovsky controlling the narrative in Russia um, from the very early days of Putin. Um, I, I think increasingly this is, I don't know whether fascist or totalitarian is the right word, but I think that's what we use both. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, I, yeah, there's been a steady movement in this direction throughout Putin's presidency. In fact, I was just going over this with my class yesterday. Um, but what what I'm thinking about now, not is is this escalation continued, but are we seeing a qualitative shift? And how much darker can this get? Um, it, it can't get much darker in terms of foreign affairs, but in terms of Russian domestic politics, how much darker could this get? I mean, they 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 have not you know reinstituted the gulag. They're not shooting you know, shooting people in the basement of Lubyanka yet. Um, but this is getting creepy. When you're starting to see opposition figures get 25-year sentences, Navalny may be facing life. Um, that, that, there's only, there, there are very few steps between that and the darkest periods of Russian and Soviet history. And I'm wondering where we are heading. True, but I mean, sure, they may not be shooting people in the basement of Lubyanka these days, but they shot and killed Anna Politkovskaya and the in her apartment building. Mm-hmm. Uh, they poisoned Alexander Litvinenko. They shot and killed Boris Nemtsov that we talked about before in 2015, yards from the Kremlin. Um, they didn't kill him, but they arrested the richest guy in Russia in 2003, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I, I think their feeling is, and I don't want to uh, overinterpret or psychoanalyze Putin and the Kremlin, but if they use some individuals as signals and symbols they don't have to go after everybody they're just trying to instill a layer of fear so that everybody gets the message going after the richest guy in russia in 2003 was intended not just to silence khodakovsky but to send a signal to all the other oligarchs in russia don't step out of line killing Politkovsky was meant to send a signal uh to other journalists and then Estemirov was killed and and others have paid the terrible price so uh, I think the feeling is maybe we don't have to launch what occurred in the Soviet period under Stalin, um, but you send the signal by making examples of people and everyone will get the message. It is an ugly, ugly situation there. Yep. And um, I, I, it, it's not going to get better as long as Putin remains in power. Yeah, in terms of the killing, up until now it has been extrajudicial, right? Yeah. Um, it's been, I mean, I, I made the argument, you know, back in the 2000s that Russia has death squads and I still believe they, 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 they do indeed have, have death squads. The, the question is, does this extrajudicial become judicial? Because that's the only, the only dark place we could go. And you also said a, a very operative word there, David, is fear. Because when I look at the Russian system, I tend to think of, do you get change when three factors are present? When you have a kind of divided elite which we are seeing signs of that we have right now, when you have a discontented public, which we are seeing signs of right now, particularly among young people. And the third and crucial factor is the absence of fear. When those three things are present, you get political change. And Putin understands, I think, that he really has to double down on the fear right now to make sure we don't get to that place of absence of fear. Because once it's absence of fear, it's game over for this regime. And I think they they realize that's the only card they got to play domestically right now. Would you agree? I, I would, Brian. I think you put it very well. Um, I would add one other element, though, and 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 that's only because of the invasion, reinvasion of Ukraine, and that is he's got to be mindful of the of the troops on the ground. Uh, I mean, remember they're doing the same thing with those troops, 
uh, particularly Wagner mercenaries, they'll shoot and kill them if they try to escape. And uh, again, trying to send a signal, trying to instill fear so that these guys will agree to be treated as cannon fodder on the front lines. But if there is a major turn on the battlefront, on the battlefront there, then that could spell big problems for Putin. So he has created a fourth factor that he needs to be mindful of, Mm -hmm. and he is not taking care of that at all. And if if the, you know, we talked about this before, the possibility of a sudden Russian military collapse, I think, is a real possibility. Um, And if that were to happen, um, that leads to all sorts of consequences that I can't even imagine right now. Yeah, no, I'm thinking the same thing. A lot of people have talked about the 1917 scenario when the when the when the Russian military could, during World War One just completely collapsed. Some, of course, we're all waiting for that Ukrainian spring offensive, and so much is contingent upon how successful that is, and how successful that is is very contingent on us continuing to provide exactly. Ukraine with what they need. And that's the I want to kind of hammer that home as we move towards the end here for anybody that's listening. To how all Ukraine they win. Help Ukraine win. Say it again and again and again. Um, David, we're bumping up against the end. I'm mindful of your time. I'm mindful of the clock. Anything you want to add before I wrap it up? Appreciate this very much, Brian. It's always a pleasure to be with you and uh, even from your trendy DuPont Circle office. I hope the sound is better in my trendy DuPont. I'll 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 wait for snarky comments. on. We can hear you no matter where you are. All right. On that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Political Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice the UC McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, has been the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. David, thank you for an enlightening discussion and making us all a lot smarter. Brian, thanks very much. Always good to be all with you. Always good to be with you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Political Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can Access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. 